Good morning, everyone. Rondebosch Common Ground and Constantia Berg. It is great to be together. Like Ian said, my name is Goth, and I have an amazing wife named Sam. I have a beautiful little girl named Katie. They are the special ladies in my life. So I'll be celebrating them tomorrow. And uh, all the ladies that are watching, all the ladies that are here today, we celebrate you as we observe Women's Day tomorrow. And uh, we're in week two of our Becoming Emotionally Mature series, and throughout this series, we're hopefully going to see how we're able to lead our emotions towards God, how we're able to be shaped by His truth instead of being shaped by our own. And uh, there's this reality as, um, for us as Christ followers that if we think that we're going to be growing spiritually mature, but we're not going to be growing in Christ-like emotional maturity, that we might be fooling ourselves. And uh, Luke mentioned it last week when we kicked off the series by telling us that if we want to grow in emotional maturity, we're going to have to look beneath the surface of our lives. We're going to have to start there. We're going to have to audit ourselves soberly. We're going to have to invite Christ into our lives to come and transform anything that might be hindering our relationship with Him, might be hindering our relationship uh, with others. And so today what we're going to be speaking about is breaking free from the past, breaking free from the past. What do I mean by the past? Well, believe it or not, we are not just the product of our own habits, our own thoughts and our actions, uh, but we've been shaped and molded into the people that we are today by the people that are close to us, especially our, our parents. And some of that shaping and that molding, man, it's been blessing, it's been good things. And what we're going to see tonight, though, is that there can also be uh, specific sin patterns in our family that is handed down to us and that can stunt our spiritual maturity. And often we can see the sin of one generation uh, affecting or being passed on to the next generation. And maybe there's already some examples running through your head, as I've mentioned that this evening. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go to the Bible, and I want to show us kind of a couple of snapshots through three generations. Uh, we're going to look at I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, starting from Genesis 12. So let's start our little whistle-stop journey. Um, so first, God calls this man Abraham, and he tells him to leave behind the, the place that he knows, the world that he knows, to, and calls him to follow God and, and to this land and this future uh, for his family. And so amazingly, he goes, he leaves it all behind. And it's good to know that Abraham, uh, God didn't choose Abraham because Abraham was this fantastic guy that God needed him in his team. God chose Abraham because God is gracious, the same way that God would choose uh, us. And so it also means that Abraham would come with a lot of baggage. And uh, what would happen is Abraham uh, would have to take Sarah, his wife, that had to head to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And uh, we're going to see that he would adopt some deceptive practices. So from Genesis 12, it says, As he, Abraham, was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, who would later become Sarah, he says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, This is my wife. Then they'll kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And when Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw Sarai and it was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. 
He treated Abram well for, uh, for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. And we see here Abraham's deception would put his wife Sarah into this moral jeopardy. And what's worse is a few years later, as we see in Genesis 20, and this is where their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah, Abraham does exactly the same thing with uh, King Abimelech when they uh, travel to a place called Gerar. And uh, he's scared of the king, and again, he would call Sarah his sister to protect his own skin. Both occasions, God would also intervene, and he would protect Sarah, and uh, Sarah and Abraham will be asked to leave the city. Um, But what we see going on here is this habitual sin of deception, I mean, amongst other things. And uh, in Genesis Genesis 26, we meet Abraham's son Isaac, who's uh, married to Rebekah. And now we're into the second generation, and there's another famine in the land. And Isaac goes to the same king, Abimelech, and the Lord says to Isaac, listen, you must stay in uh, the land, and I'll bless you, just like I did your father. And then guess what happens? Genesis 26, it says, so Isaac stayed in Gerar, and when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, and you guessed it, she is my Sister, I mean, I feel like this is the kind of stuff you're going to want to bring up at pre-marriage when you're discussing these types of things when you're marrying into a family. It says, because we're afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Exact same king, exact same place. And it's profound to see how the sin of the father lives and is perpetuated by the sons. It's like father, like son. But we also see this the sin of deception appears in Isaac's children too. Some of you will know the story. But, uh, later, Isaac's wanting to bless his son Esau, and uh, his other son Jacob, knowing that his father's eyesight, uh, Isaac's eyesight isn't good, dresses up as Esau. He puts some wool on his arms to try and fool his father for the blessing. Uh, and then in Genesis 27, 21, it says, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, replied. Here's Isaac's son lying to his own dad in order to benefit himself. And, and even in the rest of the story, we'll see that Jacob goes on to become a, a con man and repeatedly lying. And we see these patterns of deception and selfishness, I mean, amongst other things, passed down from generation to generation. And we see it affecting each of these generations. And so I want to point us to one final scripture. It's in Exodus chapter 20. And here in the Exodus, in the, in the middle of the Ten Commandments, we read this from verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so what's God saying here? Don't stress. What God's not saying is that the the great-great-grandchildren uh, are going to be punished for the great-great-grandparents' sin. This is not what he's saying. But there are a few things that he is saying here. And the, and the first thing he's saying is that generational sin is a reality. 
Generational sin is a reality. God is describing what we've just actually seen in the Scriptures. That sin, in, in some way, like genetics, it's passed down from parents to children. We can see that that happens. And often, it can be, it can be a specific kind of sin that is passed down. And, and I don't know how it works in terms of nature and nurture and genetics. I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. But we know from a spiritual side that there's definitely a bend towards a particular sin in our lives that would originate with our, our, our parents or our parents' parents or our family of origin. And also, sin has consequences that can last generations. Sin has consequences that can last for generations. And we kind of know this intuitively, most of us. We've, we kind of we experience this. I mean, how many of us have been affected by things in our family? Infidelity, betrayal, abandonment, abuse, violence, self-worship, messy divorces. And maybe... Even there were parts of that that was caused by your grandparents in your parents' life that's been passed down. It's had this ripple effect in impacting generational families. But we also know that on the scale of God's mercy and judgment, God's mercy wins every time. God's mercy wins every time. Sin's power to influence is it's described here in Exodus. It's described to the third and the fourth generation, but the love and the mercy of God, man, described to the thousandth generation. And we see God's heart in how he shows mercy and love. And, and God isn't punishing us for our parents' sin. That's not the idea. But your grandparents' sin or your great-grandparents' sin, it might be playing out in our life, but it's important to know that's our sin. It's what we're responsible for in our lives. But that's what makes God's mercy such good news. But I mean, the, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, is that our family of origin has a massive bearing on who we are today. Also, events from our past while we're growing up can affect us. And maybe you grew up in, in poverty. Maybe you grew up with lots of money. Maybe you were a, an only child, a middle child. Um, all of these things can shape us, both the, the, the bad things and the good things that have happened uh, to all of us. And, and what can often happen is we can carry the bad and the good into our present uh, day and possibly into our future. And even from the story of Abraham, we see he, he would make many mistakes, but we also see that he would do good things. We see blessing in his life and through the generations, but we also see these, this pattern of deception. I think we too are likely to have both blessing and sin from our past that would be shaping our present. And uh, it's obvious one of the most closest relationships in our life, the most influential is that of our parents. It's that of our parents. And whether it was our biological parents, whether it was someone who filled that role, maybe it might have been the absence of parents for some of us. But it can impact the, the, the nature of our sin in many ways. It can also influence the way that we would view God. I mean, if we, if we grew up having to earn love with our parents, you, we probably might have this view that we have to earn God's love too. I think if we grew up with parents that were angry all the time, we could possibly struggle to see God as a compassionate, compassionate father. If you were never told no, you just got given everything uh, you want, I mean, we could start to see God as some sort of genie that just has to fulfill our desires. But maybe for some of us, we experience parents that would, maybe they abandoned you. Maybe they embarrassed you or they felt burdened by you. 
Maybe they used you. Maybe they, they hurt you, overpressurized you. Maybe in some ways they could have communicated that you didn't matter. Man, this can affect the way that we would perceive how God thinks of us. And man, when, we, when we're talking about generational sin and when we're talking about uh, our p- parents, I think of original sin that goes back many, many generations to the world's first parents, Adam and Eve. And uh, they mess things up terribly, let me tell you. And uh, let me tell you, since Genesis 3, there haven't been perfect parents found on the face of the earth. We need to know that. And I've been a parent for just a year, and I can tell you how imperfect I've been in just a year. And I think one thing that we've got to clarify, and I think that's good for us to know as parents, is that not all the sins of our children are because of bad parenting or our mistakes. It's important to know that. As parents, we're not called to perfect parenting. We're called to trust and follow the Lord in our parenting. And that means trusting his mercy and his grace to help shape us and guide us in how we would raise our children in the way of the Lord. That's what we call to imperfectly, humbly, and obediently following God and doing the best that we can. And uh, we had our parenting course the other night, and uh, one of the leaders said something so great. He said, in parenting our child, we need to remember that we too are a child, a child of a heavenly father in need of grace as we grow in our Christ-likeness. No matter how many times we mess up, the grace of God allows us to come back to the Lord and to seek His correction and His restoration, especially in our parent-child relationship. We can trust Him with our parenting and with our child's lives. We need to trust Him. So I thought um, I would share a little bit of my story of how uh, generational sin has played out in my life. And one of the ways it's played out in my family has been through addiction and, and substance abuse. And uh, my dad and I were actually talking the other day in the kitchen, and we're just saying there's not a lot of people in our family that haven't struggled with addiction and, and substance abuse. And <clears throat> my dad struggled with addiction, and he struggled with alcoholism. And uh, uh, he's a Christian. He was also a pastor. And addiction would get hold of his life. And uh, he spent time in, in rehab. He spent time in AA meetings. And uh, he's had to deal with his past. He's had to do business with God in this respect. And uh, it was tough, uh, tough to try and navigate this as I was growing up. But one of the things that would happen is I, too, would come to struggle with this. And uh, throughout high school and, and varsity life, it would consist of a lot of drinking, a, a lot of drugs. And when I would get to the age of 23, my entire life would fall out from beneath me. My entire life would fall out from beneath me. My excessive drinking, my cocaine habit uh, would take its way and would have its way with me. And uh, my girlfriend at the time would leave me because of the person I had become. And I had been unfaithful to her. And my substance abuse was just through the roof. And I couldn't stop. I was stuck. And to the point where my parents wouldn't recognize their son anymore. And um, my dad, uh, knowing kind of what was happening in my life, would call me one day and he would say, I, I think you must come over. I think we need to chat. And what he would say to me is, he would say, Boiki, always calls me Boiki. He would say, Boiki, let me tell you what I think is happening here. Let me tell you what I can see in your life. Because it runs in our family, and it's this thing called addiction. It's this disease. And I'm telling you, it's going to ruin your life. And I can tell you, 
at the time, I was also I was so depressed. I was wanting to end it all. And my dad said to me, he said, tell me what's making you so depressed. Tell me what's going on. <clears throat> what's beneath the surface? And you know, in that moment, I just laid everything out. I laid everything out. The booze, the parting, the sex, the cocaine, the broken relationships, the dishonesty. I just laid it all out there. And... Um, I was expecting my dad to be disappointed and walk away. We need some time to at least process. And I'll never forget what my dad said. He looked at me and he said, is that all? Is that what's getting you to this place? And what my dad wasn't doing, he wasn't diminishing sin. And uh, he knew how destructive sin can be. And he, he knows how seriously we've got to take sin. But what he knew more was the transforming power of Jesus Christ to redeem, restore, and reshape the brokenness that I was experiencing. The power of Jesus Christ to take the old and make it new again. You see, my dad knew that there's no brokenness, sinfulness, messiness that the gospel of grace can't bring you back from and restore. And it's like our scripture says, is that there might be a couple of generations affected by the sin, but the mercy of God sustains for a thousand generations. And uh, my, my dad would give me a Bible, and I wasn't a Christian at the time. My dad would give me a Bible, and he'd say, I think the answers that you're looking for are in here. The, the freedom that I think you're thirsting for, the freedom that uh, you feel like you can never attain can be found in here. His name is Jesus. He, he doesn't just come to give you a life without just drinking or drugs. He's going to give you a whole new identity. And in this moment, there would be a picture of uh, the father with the disease of addiction that would be p- passed down, that couldn't do anything, would also be giving his son the spiritual vaccine that could cure it, that could redeem, and that could restore in the person of Jesus. And, and that night, I would put my faith in Jesus. I'd ask him to transform my life. I wanted to follow him no matter the cost. And the next day, with my, my new identity in Christ intact, my dad and I would go to our first AA meeting together, and the Lord would start his redemptive work in my heart and in my life. And God would start transforming me into who I already was in him from that day. He would start transforming me into who I already was in him on that day. And I'm not going to lie, it was tough, it was sore, it was filled with honest, raw conversations, apologies, repentance, tears, had to face all my stuff. But, but then there was a moment, it was about six or seven months later, and I was driving uh, Musenberg Way, and suddenly I got overwhelmed with peace. And to the point where I started crying, and I had to pull over, and I, was, and I was crying, and I was weeping. And the reason that I was weeping was because for the first time in my life, I felt what true peace, what true freedom felt like that I'd never experienced before. And the deep surgery that God had done was starting to show its healing effects, its redemptive fruit in my life. This, this somewhat spiritual chemotherapy was working in my life. And I think sometime when we have to face our past, God breaks us free from our past in a way that it can feel just like that, a spiritual chemotherapy, where we're feeling, man, why is this thing that's supposed to be making me feel better, making me feel right, quite terrible right now? 
But sometimes obedience to God and owning and, and facing our stuff can, can be sore, can be like, a, like a, a gospel antiseptic to a sinful wound. But the, but the thing is, is that we've got to believe that true freedom, true redemption comes from Christ. And this is what our soul needs most. See, we've got to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he, he paid for all our sins, not just the little ones, not the obvious, obvious ones, all of them, the ugliest, baddest, meanest sins. And especially those sins that have been patterns in our family for years. In turn, he gives us this new identity. He offers himself as the road to redemption. And because of what Christ has done on the cross, family patterns, the shackles of the past, don't need to define or steal away from our present or from our future, or from our children's future, or from our children's children's future. And hey, if you, if you, maybe you're watching for the first time, you haven't really considered uh, Jesus as Savior or Redeemer. You maybe haven't even considered Jesus at all. But you know that, man, your, your family history is hurtful. It's complicated. It's, it's messy. Your life seems messy and complicated. And maybe you even just feel stuck. You just feel stuck. Can I be the first to offer you the spiritual vaccine that quenches our longing for freedom that we might be thirsting for? that the answers we might be looking for could be found in this book, that the life of freedom that you've been searching for has already been purchased and paid on the cross, and all you need to do is come to humbly accept it. His name is Jesus. He's made a way. He's our Redeemer, and He's our Restorer. For those of us that have a relationship with Jesus, maybe... Over the years, you've felt the same about family generational sin and some of the things that you've been dealing with in your life. Maybe some of us have been dealing with these things for years. I just want to give us some suggestions that uh, in what we can do to bring these things before God. And uh, three, three just helpful suggestions in dealing with generational sin in our lives. But first, I think we've got to identify it. We've got to identify it. What do I mean by that? Well, we've got to look at who are the people and the events that have shaped our lives. We've got to audit ourselves a little bit before the Lord. And we've got to look back and say, well, and in what ways did these people, all these events shape my life? And, and bring this before God. Call out to God and say, Lord, audit me. Show me if there's anything that's hindering my relationship with you, my relationship with other people. Show me where there's things that have shaped me that shouldn't be there. And some of us, we might have trouble identifying this and identifying these things. And I'd, I'd say move towards uh, friends, move towards leaders to speak through some of this stuff. Uh, Peter Scazzaro, in his book, he calls this the unbiblical commandments that we've learned, in a way, that gener- generational sin would produce. And uh, maybe some of us would consider doing the redemption course, uh, the breaking ground that we, that we advertise tonight. It starts on the 8th of September that can help us work some of these things out, especially around our identity in God. The other thing to do is to own it, to own it. And this simply means to take responsibility for it, to take responsibility for it. We can sometimes look at these things and we can, we can uh, shift the blame to previous generations. And actually what we've got to do is we've got to, we've got to acknowledge the sin in our lives and we've got to acknowledge that it's sin in, in our lives. 
and not keep thinking that it's someone else's problem, not putting it off, not coming up with excuses, but taking responsibility for our sin. We've got to own it, and then we've got to take it to God and take it to our church family. Take it to God and take it to our church family. And so when I say take it to God, what I mean is we, we get to repent. We need to repent. We need to realize that we don't have what it takes to change within our own strength. We need God's grace. We need His truth. We need His transforming power in our lives. And so because Jesus has dealt with our sin, we don't have shame or guilt. There's simply this accepting Jesus' free gift of grace and the new identity that He has given us. We get to turn away from the unbiblical commandments that we learned we rather get to embrace living by God's word. That's repentance. And the amazing thing about this incredible gift of God's grace is that we, it doesn't just bring freedom in our, in our lives, but it also brings freedom for future generations ahead. When we trust in God, when we repent, we put a stake in the ground. And when it comes to you know, the specific sin that might flow downstream, we get to put a stake in the ground and say, no more, Jesus. Come and redeem, Lord. Come and redeem. Come and do your redemptive work. We're going to press into your grace, Lord. And I wonder how many stories can be future generations saying, my family used to struggle with sinful financial decisions, affairs, pornography, legalism, arrogance, anger, addiction, substance abuse, all these things. My family used to struggle. And then what happened? This is where... Christ intervened. This is where Christ intervened. And I'd suggest that we also need to bring this before our church family. Often the church is referred to as the family of God in the Bible, and it's obvious because we adopted into this family as children of God. And, and God uses our church family to help us relearn the way of Jesus. And it's so awesome that we get to learn from one another and experience the freedom that comes with living with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers around God's truth. Scripture can tell us that learning from one another is like iron sharpening iron. And we need to get with one another around God's truth. We've got to be honest with one another. We've got to put our lives before one another. We've got to get honest about our stuff. We've got to encourage one another in the faith. We've got to spur one another in this time. We've got to listen to one another, help correct one another. We need to pray for one another. Pray, pray, and pray some more for one another. And I know some of us, we struggle to see church in this way or as a family. And it gets hard being online and being disconnected, but we're still a family. We've got to believe that the church is God's family, and it is a blessing from God. To be part of his family means to experience some of that grace that he has towards us. We can't do this walk alone. We need each other. We need each other. What we're going to do now is uh, we're going to listen to a testimony from Tracy, and she's just going to share how this truth has played out in her life. So uh, put your eyes to the screen, and let's watch the testimony. Hi, I'm Tracy. People often ask me, how did you turn out so normal? When they hear more about my family and my story. We even joke about it within my family. Beyond the joking though, 
For me, the journey of brokenness in my family has been something that I have had to acknowledge and address, process, surrender to God through prayer, and do the hard work to break free from the effects of the past so that I can live in the future that God has for me, something I not only wanted and needed for myself, but for my husband and kids too. I've experienced firsthand how easy it can be to take the experiences and emotional baggage experienced over years and let it shape who you see yourself and others as. I don't remember my parents ever being happily married and their marriage was marked by a volatility that led to relational breakdown long before they got divorced. They were so bad at communication that as a nine-year-old I was taking the divorce papers between them so they didn't have to speak to each other and having to hide under my sister's bed when they did speak, as it was often an awful fight. My image of caretakers was tarnished by them modelling abuse of substances, depression and suicide as ways to escape reality. I quickly learned that emotions were scary because they were almost always experienced in the extreme and led to bad things. Our family also really struggled financially, which meant that we moved a lot. I went to six different schools and lived in eight different homes over my childhood and there was never any communication about any of it. My parents both struggled with substance abuse to the point that it not only made me grow up really quickly and look out for myself, but it often felt like I was responsible for taking care of them too. My mom was hospitalized and tried rehab, and my dad even found himself homeless. These memories were so core to my childhood experience that they shaped me deeply. I became very independent, but not in the good way. After years of being let down by everyone, independence was a defense against trusting others and being vulnerable in any way. This worked inwardly too, as I switched off my emotions as much as possible and shoved any negative feeling as deep as I could so I wouldn't have to deal with it, learning to soldier on as if nothing fazed me. I let no one in to see the real me, as I was sure they would see the truth of how unworthy I really was and would potentially hurt me even more. I became withdrawn and cautious, so I never said the wrong thing to upset anyone. My ultimate goal as a child was to do everything I could to become fully independent, excel at school, work, and save money to buy myself a car and pay for my studies, so I only ever needed to rely on myself. My identity became linked to what I was able to do and achieve, and then drinking with friends enabled me to like myself a little more, relax, and have a good time. I knew what I didn't want my own family and life to be like one day, but I had no idea of what I did want it to look like until God got hold of me after school. He invited me into his family and used this church community to reveal his truth to me, who I was created to be and how I fit into his family. Through reading God's word and unpacking it on Sundays and in life group, God helped me to understand what it means to be made in his image to truly believe that I am worthy and valued because I am his daughter, regardless of what my experience has taught me, and that this status is unearnable by me, but a gift from Jesus through his merciful sacrifice. I have experienced genuine love from my brothers and sisters in Christ, love that is not based on what I am able to achieve or give, but on my identity as a daughter and sister, a love that builds trust and a healthy level of dependence on one another. A love that sanctifies and protects. My marriage and mothering would not be what it is today without these examples of faithful followers of Jesus. Time and time again, God has whispered to me that a certain trait I have is not who I am, but an outcome of what I have experienced. These moments are some of the most freeing, where I realize that I'm not tied to a thought pattern, emotional characteristic, that it doesn't have to be like that, that I can be different 
When I lost my mom a few years ago to suicide, I saw how different I was to how I had been. God reminded me that he is the one true source of hope and the only stable foundation worthy of building my life upon. Instead of hurling myself up and walling myself off, I felt the support and love of my spiritual family and my husband. And the experience of loss didn't derail me away from health, but I was able to grieve with all my emotions and pressed more into God my Father and the family He had put around me. I am so grateful for the many areas where God has radically transformed me by His grace, kindness and mercy. And I'm sure there will be more areas that He will reveal to me in time to come. There are moments where I wish my upbringing had been different, better, but it is never long before I am reminded that every single moment in my past has led me to where I am today, that every difficulty has created a bigger need to depend on God, that every moment of suffering or pain has made me more aware of the deep joy and peace I get to find in Him, that every time I have reached the end of my capacity to endure in my own strength, I have been shown that He will faithfully strengthen and uphold me every time, that I wasn't designed to do it on my own, and that He is my very present help. Ephesians 3, verse 20 to 21 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Such a powerful testimony. Thank you for sharing, Trace. And um, what an amazing picture of God's redeeming love and the blessing of, of community. Um, we're going to land in communion now. And so if you've got some bread or crackers or juice or at home, you can grab that as well. But uh, as we started off this talk, I kind of gave us the snapshot of these three generations. And uh, if we follow those generations, if we follow the lineage... As we look through the Bible, we're going to see that there's a lot of people that aren't going to be able to cut it. There's, there's going to be a lot of imperfection, a lot of repeated failure, and a lot of sinfulness in generations to come. But through this lineage, there would come one, the promised one, the, the Messiah, Jesus. And like I said earlier, he would make a way. He would make a way. He would bring redemption for sins by giving himself as a sacrifice for us, His body broken for us, His blood shed for us. And in this act of, of grace and mercy, we'd be able to have a new identity in Him. There would be this moment in history as we look back where Christ would put a stake in the ground. <clears throat> and so what I want to do is just give us a moment as we take these elements just to have a time to pray, to remind our souls of this truth and to think of what it means to walk in this new identity and this freedom that's available to us and to praise God in our hearts. So let's do that. Let's take that moment together.
Lord, we thank you that you, you made a way where there was no way, Lord. Thank you that because of your death on the cross, because of your sacrifice, Jesus, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no condemnation, that we can come freely before you, Jesus. We can call out to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you have given us a new identity in you, Jesus. That we have redemption in you, Lord. Lord, I pray for all of us as we work these things out, as we ordered ourselves before you, Jesus, that you would show us where there might be patterns of sin, where there might be these unbiblical commandments, things that are not of your way, things that will affect our relationship with you, things that will affect our relationship with other people. Would you come and press on them, Holy Spirit, I pray, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we could press into the freedom that you have bought for us, Jesus. That we could experience that redemption, Jesus. And we could say here and no more because of what Jesus has done, Lord. We praise you in your mighty name, Lord. Amen.